Cluster B personality disorders are characterized by dramatic, overly emotional, and unpredictable thoughts and behavior. From Ars Longa Media, this is Cluster B, scientifically informed, expert insights into the four Cluster B personality types, antisocial, borderline, narcissistic, and histrionic personality disorder. Here's today's host, Dr. Todd Grande. Oh, this is Dr. Grande. Today's question is, what are the characteristics of the malignant narcissist? And I have some other questions that are kind of related to this, like how does this manifest in work settings? And what do you do if you find yourself in a situation with a malignant narcissist, like working with one or in a romantic relationship with one? So what we see with the term malignant narcissist to start with is we have to look at the word malignant. And this has a few different possible meanings, but generally we look at malignant as being malevolent, cruel, hostile, spiteful, acrimonious. And then if we're talking about like disorders, we would say something more like dangerous, harmful, invasive, or infectious. And really, more or less, all these apply to the term malignant as we see it in malignant narcissist. Now, malignant narcissism is not a mental disorder. Somebody can't be diagnosed with this construct. And we know that it's really not well studied either. We see a few papers on malignant narcissism and some different aspects of the trait in books and such, but we don't really see a lot of information overall on this construct. So there's disagreement about what it is. Now we see that the term was first coined in 1964 by Eric Fromm, and he referred to it really as one of the worst things that could happen to somebody in terms of societal impact, meaning if somebody was a malignant narcissist, they would be destructive in society. But the person who really made malignant narcissism famous, for lack of a better word, would be Otto Kernberg. And he talked quite a bit about what it meant to be a malignant narcissist, what the term really meant to him, even though, again, there's no single agreed-upon definition. When we look at how Kernberg thought about malignant narcissism, we see that really it has aspects of narcissistic personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, paranoia, but not necessarily paranoid personality disorder, and also egocentric sadism and aggression. So that's how he really looked at malignant narcissism. So I'll break this down in terms of these constructs and just take a quick look at the criteria for antisocial personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. And then I'll take a look at what it means to have egocentric sadism. So with antisocial personality disorder, we see seven symptom criteria in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. We see somebody who commits crimes, so repeated unlawful behaviors. We see someone who lies, deceitfulness. We see impulsivity and poor planning, irritability and aggression, which could include getting in physical altercations, having a reckless disregard for the safety of others and the safety of oneself, consistently being irresponsible, and having a lack of remorse. Now, with narcissistic personality disorder, we see a grandiose sense of self-importance. We see fantasies of success and power, believing oneself to be special or unique, requiring excessive admiration, having a sense of entitlement, manipulating other people, having a lack of empathy, being jealous, and having kind of an arrogant or condescending attitude. So those are the criteria for narcissistic personality disorder. And of course, I mentioned the ones for antisocial personality disorder. The last component here in terms of Kernberg, his conceptualization of malignant narcissism that I'll explain, is this egocentric sadism. 
So if somebody's sadistic, they take pleasure in harming others. And what egocentonic means is the way somebody conceptualizes something, the way they think about something and understand something matches their behavior and their feelings. So if somebody has an egocentonic presentation, they're okay with their behaviors. So if somebody's sadistic and that sadism is egocentonic, they're okay with the idea of hurting people. It doesn't disturb them. If someone's egodystonic, they may still be sadistic, but they'll have difficulty carrying out sadistic acts. They'll feel guilty. It won't feel right to them. There'll be cognitive dissonance there. So really with egocentonic behaviors, we see behaviors that are going to continue because there's not that internal check available to stop it. So really this has been related to the idea of having no conscience, but that's really kind of a philosophical concept as opposed to a strictly scientific concept. But either way, we can see kind of the different words floating around with malignant narcissism. They carry a lot of impact, like evil and not having a conscience. So this is a construct that's taken very seriously and again believed to be quite destructive. Now, in terms of malignant narcissism and narcissistic personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder, we see with Kernberg's conceptualization that malignant narcissism is on a continuum between those two constructs. So between narcissistic personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder. And you could also say between NPD and psychopathy, although psychopathy and antisocial personality disorder don't perfectly align. And I'll explain a little bit more about that in a moment. But either way, that's generally Kernberg's take on malignant narcissism. So narcissism, pathological narcissism anyway, is on a continuum. NPD is kind of on the side that doesn't cause too many problems. And psychopathy is on the side that causes a lot more problems. And malignant narcissism kind of sits in the middle. Now, we see other conceptualizations other than Otto Kernberg's. We see conceptualizations that say that malignant narcissism is really a comorbid presentation of NPD and antisocial personality disorder. So what this means is that malignant narcissism would be when somebody has both mental disorders, when they have NPD and antisocial personality disorder at the same time. So that's not what Kernberg said. But that's another fairly common way of thinking about malignant narcissism. So if we explore this NPD and antisocial personality disorder relationship a little, we see that the conceptualizations of these two disorders really overlap quite a bit, even though we don't technically see an overlap in the criteria and the definitions of the disorders. So clinicians struggle to differentiate between these two personality disorders, and both personality disorders share an important attribute, which is low agreeableness on the five-factor model of personality. So we see Openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. That's the five-factor model. That agreeableness trait is low. So we see disagreeableness with both NPD and antisocial personality disorder. Specifically, if we break it down to the facet level, we see particularly low scores on straightforwardness and trust, two facets of agreeableness. Now, the conceptual overlap of these two disorders is so pronounced that narcissistic personality disorder almost didn't make it into the current DSM. The thinking was maybe antisocial personality disorder really covers both constructs. Now, of course, it is in the current version. So we have both disorders, both personality disorders available in terms of diagnoses. So with all this in mind, what are my thoughts in terms of malignant narcissism, right? So how do I conceptualize 
this construct based on the literature, but also on my personal experience treating people who have high levels of narcissism and psychopathy. Well, I agree with Otto Kernberg in some ways, but disagree in others. So here's how I look at malignant narcissism. I certainly see that there is a narcissistic component and one that's somewhat consistent with narcissistic personality disorder, but I believe there could also be vulnerable narcissistic features here as well. So narcissistic personality disorder really mostly covers grandiose narcissism. So I would add the vulnerable piece to the narcissistic part of malignant narcissism. I agree that psychopathy is part of it, and I'll talk a little bit more in a moment about psychopathy and how different parts of both types of psychopathy are kind of in malignant narcissism the way I think about it. I agree malignant narcissism has an association with being sadistic and being aggressive. And I think that aggression can really take a wide variety of forms when it comes to malignant narcissism. Now, in terms of paranoia, I think a lot of this comes from the low scores and the trust facet of agreeableness. So I understand why people believe that paranoia is present in malignant narcissism, but I've seen many instances where malignant narcissism appears to be present, but there's no paranoia. So I would say that paranoia could be there, but I don't really consider it a key part of the definition. Now, another area with malignant narcissism that I view a bit differently than Otto Kernberg is the idea that it's on a continuum between NPD and antisocial personality disorder. I view it more as a co-occurrence, so more as both mental disorders being present at the same time. So one of the reasons I conceptualize it as a co-occurrence and not on a continuum really has to do with how I see narcissism and psychopathy related. So again, to look at it as a continuum, everybody who's psychopathic would have to be narcissistic. And I can understand certainly and appreciate that most people who are psychopathic are narcissistic. But I've seen psychopathy present absent certain fairly prominent narcissistic characteristics. For example, I've met people who are psychopathic who do not feel special or unique, that do not require admiration, excessive or otherwise, who do not have fantasies of success and power, and who aren't jealous of other people, and they don't believe other people are jealous of them. So four kind of key characteristics of narcissism that you wouldn't necessarily see with somebody who has psychopathy. So again, I look at this more as a co-occurrence and not so much as a continuum. I don't see psychopathy on the same continuum as narcissism. So I mentioned a moment ago that I see malignant narcissism as having narcissistic and psychopathic components. And I wanted to break down psychopathy to kind of differentiate it from antisocial personality disorder, but also to kind of pick out the characteristics that I think are part of malignant narcissism and also explain the characteristics that I don't think are part of malignant narcissism, specifically from psychopathy. So at psychopathy, we see two types or two factors, factor one and factor two, and sometimes they're called primary and secondary. Now to add to the confusion, sometimes primary psychopathy is also just called psychopathy and secondary psychopathy is called sociopathy. But here I'm just gonna use the terms factor one and factor two. So factor one psychopathy, you have characteristics like grandiosity, pathological lying, manipulation, superficial charm, having a lack of empathy, and lacking feelings of guilt or remorse. With factor two psychopathy, we see a parasitic lifestyle, impulsivity, irresponsibility, failure to create long-term goals, and criminality. When I look at malignant narcissism, I often see the grandiosity, the lying, the manipulation, 
the lack of empathy, lack of guilt, lack of remorse, as well as the impulsivity and the criminality. But I don't always see the superficial charm. It's there sometimes, but I don't always see that. And I don't always see the parasitic lifestyle, the sensation-seeking, the irresponsibility, and the failure to set long-term goals either, right? So there's a few characteristics we see here with specifically secondary psychopathy that I don't necessarily believe are part of malignant narcissism. Now, what we see here with malignant narcissism is that when we talk about this, sometimes we see all these characteristics I've talked about. We think these seem to be related to serial killers or other violent offenders. I can see that. I can see how malignant narcissism would put somebody at a greater risk for that. But the chances of somebody becoming a serial killer are fairly low. So malignant narcissism, I think, has an overlap there, but that's not something that happens too often. I think that most of the time, malignant narcissism, other than all the characteristics I've covered in, in the way I conceptualize it, is really about power, but more in a smart way, meaning smart enough to move up in an organization, but still having those characteristics where somebody wants to harm somebody. So somebody who has malignant narcissism is powerful and somewhat clever, but not as clever, say, as someone who's Machiavellianistic. So really, it's like someone who's Machiavellianistic plus a sadistic component. That's one way you could look at it, too. And of course, some other components thrown in. But that's how I kind of look at malignant narcissism. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Welcome to the Bravery Academy. My name is Emma Ferris and I'm your host. This podcast is crafted to share the stories of courageous individuals who've overcome adversity and found the courage to live their best lives. We'll explore the science of well-being, courage and connection and interview top thought leaders, game changers and survivors. And it's from these stories that we learn what resilience is, how to heal, how to recover and how to be brave. Now, specifically looking at some examples, some other characteristics we'd see with somebody who's a malignant narcissist in an organization. And many of these could apply to a romantic relationship as well. But I'm really going to look at the organizational factors, how malignant narcissists tend to behave in like medium size or large companies or potentially even small companies. Now, I've consulted to a lot of companies in terms of like team building and helping companies adopt management structures that make sense. And I've seen malignant narcissists many times over the course of many years. And I've seen certain characteristics that just keep coming up over and over. And again, here are a few of them. So I've seen that malignant narcissists tend to attack people, again, in organizations with criticism. And they feel a sense of relief when they criticize other people. 
a lot of times when they attack people with criticisms, they do so in a way where they kind of get the last word. So they'll mention a criticism like over the phone and then hang up or say they have to go really quickly. So they want the person to kind of sit with that criticism but not have a chance to respond. Or they might say it kind of like passing in a hallway, you know, in a position where two people are walking different directions and they know you really can't stop and take the time to address it. And they'll hit you with that criticism and then kind of walk away. So really the criticisms are timed for effect. And even though they can be kind of sporadic and the timing is more or less carefully planned on the part of the malignant narcissist, they are stacked on one another. So it's usually a consistent chain of criticism. So there's a theme to it. I'll talk about this theme more when I get to the gaslighting component of malignant narcissism. So the next area I see here is that the malignant narcissist is very involved. With low levels of narcissism, we see people that often really just ignore other people. And that behavior gets interpreted as being arrogant or condescending or somebody really feeling special or unique or something like that. But generally, somebody with low level of narcissism isn't highly involved with other people. They're not really actively trying to harm somebody. It might be a byproduct of their behavior, but they don't really seem to have a mission to hurt people, but rather a mission to protect a fragile sense of self. But with malignant narcissism, I see it more as an active attempt. Like really, they're looking for trouble. They want to break people down. And there's certain triggers that occur for the malignant narcissist that really activate these behaviors. Like if you attempt to offer criticism to a malignant narcissist, they're going to attack. Now, if you do that to somebody with a kind of adaptive level of narcissism, or even one that's not at a healthy level, but not as high as malignant narcissism, they may not respond well to that. They won't necessarily attack. A malignant narcissist would tend to. And really with malignant narcissism, I found there's no effective way to deliver feedback. So there's not even like a good time to offer a criticism. They're always highly reactive to criticism. Now, more worrisome, in my opinion, in terms of what it does to organizations, is really the next trigger, which is they're triggered when people that work for them display confidence, or even people that don't work for them. We see both depending on the situation. So if confidence is building, if somebody feels good about their abilities, that's a time when a malignant narcissist will attack with criticism. If somebody is demonstrating pride about an achievement, the malignant narcissist will belittle them. They'll belittle the achievement as well. And as I mentioned, this is one of the more worrisome signs. I don't like this in work settings. I think this is destructive to companies, but I also don't like it when I see it in romantic situations and in other social situations. When somebody's attacking somebody else's confidence or legitimate pride and achievement, that's really, to me, taking narcissism to a highly destructive level. It's kind of pervasive in addition to being pernicious at that point. Now, I mentioned before how when we look at kind of regular narcissism or slightly elevated narcissism, there's this idea that the individual is trying to protect a fragile sense of self and that hurting other people is kind of a byproduct of that activity. So there's a lack of insight. They're unaware. They're acting recklessly. They're not considerate of other people. But there's an argument in terms of how intentional the behavior is. Intentionality is on a continuum, so there's always going to be some level of intentionality. It's sometimes difficult to figure out how intentional the behaviors are. 
With malignant narcissism, I have kind of a different view of the intentionality. I view the act of hurting other people with malignant narcissism as intentional, not simply a byproduct of trying to protect that fragile sense of self, but rather something that somebody does on purpose because of the sadistic component. So they're getting something from hurting somebody and they know that's what they're doing. So in a sense, they're aware of it and they like being perceived as scary. So again, this is highly consistent with the idea of egocentonic aggression and egocentonic sadism. So somebody's being aggressive, again, criticizing or hurting other people in other ways, and that is okay with them. That is consistent with their values and beliefs. It's consistent with their thoughts and their feelings. So I view it as, again, more toward intentionality on the continuum. So the hurting other people part is more an intentional behavior as opposed to, again, lower levels of narcissism. So I guess another way of putting this is the malignant narcissist wants to hurt somebody for the sake of hurting somebody. And the lower level narcissist hurts people because they're trying to help themselves, hurts other people because they're trying to protect themselves. So yes, both types of narcissists hurt people. And we need to deal with that in terms of treatment and a societal level. But for the malignant narcissist, hurting people is really an important part of the mission. So the next item here is gaslighting. And gaslighting we see with really all levels of narcissism, but the type of gaslighting I see with malignant narcissism is a little bit different. It's really planned over the long run. So the way I kind of see this gaslighting component with malignant narcissism is it kind of starts with really a delusional belief on the part of the malignant narcissist. It's a criticism, and it's a criticism they may believe that would make it kind of delusional, or it's a criticism that they're putting in place, but they know it's not true. And that's really kind of self-deception or just plain lying. They're just lying to everybody. So they start with this delusional belief, this criticism of another person, and they maintain it and build on it. I mentioned this before. So the attacks are really not random. They're rather thematic. So there's a pattern to them. So they'll start with some defect in another person, some defect they think is there, or again, they're going to say is there when it's not there. And they're going to take that defect and look at all the possible ways to express that that person has the defect, all the criticisms consistent with pointing that out. And they're going to really just come back to that over and over in different ways. They're going to hit that defect, whether it's real or not, from a number of different angles over a long period of time, which does really a more effective job in convincing somebody that they're actually the problem. So the person who has the gaslighting behavior directed toward them, they believe that they're the problem. That's what gaslighting is. When somebody tries to convince you you're the problem when you're not. But because it's planned over the long run and because it sticks to a pattern, again, it's much more effective. So the malignant narcissist does a better job at convincing people that they're the problem, that the other person is the problem, and that there's nothing wrong with the malignant narcissist. And sometimes they actually frame it to where they're doing you a favor by pointing out how many defects you have. So again, smarter, I guess, is the word that comes to mind, a little more clever in the way they plan out the gaslighting. Now, another characteristic of the malignant narcissist is they can behave when necessary, right? And this is mostly the case. So what I mean by this is, like, say in an organization, 
there's people of different ranks, right? Different levels of status in the organization. The malignant narcissist kind of knows that when they go to their supervisors, they need to be careful about how narcissistic they appear. But when they're dealing with their subordinates, of course, they're going to be narcissistic and abusive. So they can kind of turn the behavior on and off. And this goes back to what I mentioned before about intentionality. If it was really about protecting a fragile sense of self, they would be narcissistic with everybody, right? But we don't see that. We see that they know how to turn it on and off as needed. Now, again, I mentioned they can't always do this. And sometimes this is really their undoing in organizations, right? If they go after one of their supervisors in a narcissistic manner, that might lead to them not working there anymore. But still, most of the time I've seen they can control this. And this really speaks to how deliberate the behavior is. Now, when speaking about the idea of being deliberate, this moves me to the next point, which is the malignant narcissist can hide behind fake compassion. And this goes back to the superficial charm, which I mentioned I think is sometimes present with malignant narcissism, but it's not always there. They can appear to be compassionate for a short period of time and kind of convince people that they have genuine feelings. I've even seen malignant narcissists kind of cry on demand. But remember, it is still shallow, so they can't necessarily maintain that behavior for a long period of time, and there's no depth to it. It's not real in terms of they're not really having that feeling of compassion. But what this particular ability does is it allows them to move up in organizations, right? So they have a lust for power. That's what they really want, but it's disguised as passion, right? So you see this oftentimes with leaders and organizations. They'll say, oh, you have to excuse, you know, my behavior, but I'm just passionate about the topic. But how I interpret that, at least some of the times, is they have a lust for power and they're trying to convince you it's about some sort of passion. They're trying to convince you that they have compassion for people, and that's why they have to be disruptive and rude and arrogant and condescending. So they're really making an excuse, but it's an excuse that a lot of people buy. People are drawn to people that appear to be compassionate for others. But that really, I think, only matters. Like, I think compassion only matters, of course, when it's real. So we have to be careful about discerning real compassion from fake compassion. The last characteristic I'll talk about here in terms of the malignant narcissist is really about impulsivity. Now, one of the things about malignant narcissism is there's still an impulsive component. And the reason I think this impulsive component is maintained is because in order for somebody to be scary, at least to the maximum level, there has to be a degree of unpredictability. There has to be this idea, for the narcissist anyway, that people are going to walk on eggshells around them. And they have to keep this impulsivity always in their back pocket, ready to use it to keep that level of scariness there, right? So that's really why I think the impulsivity kind of stays around. Otherwise, I think the malignant narcissist would abandon impulsive behavior in favor of a more Machiavellianistic approach. But again, if somebody's impulsive, they can kind of dominate people around them more effectively through really terrorizing them, just frightening them into compliance. And of course, that also builds with the kind of criticisms and all that. If someone who is impulsive is criticizing you, sometimes you're more inclined just to accept that criticism because you don't want them to impulsively act. So a lot of components here when we talk about malignant narcissism and really all of them quite destructive. So the last question here is, what if you work with or for 
a malignant narcissist? What can you do? Well, unfortunately, I don't think there are a tremendous number of options. Therapy is fairly unlikely as an occurrence for somebody who has malignant narcissism because they're really having all their needs met. They have power and they're exercising that power in a cruel way over other people. So there's really no reason for them to change from their way of thinking. Again, egocentric behavior here. Now, I think in terms of what you can do, I mean, if possible, get away from the malignant narcissist. I know that's not realistic in probably most cases. Try not to react. Try not to reinforce the behavior. When you react to the false criticisms, really the delusional criticisms, you reinforce it. The reaction is something the malignant narcissist wants you to do. So to the extent it can be avoided, I would say that would be generally a good idea, at least some circumstances. And kind of the last piece of advice would be, if necessary, just lay low. The nature of the malignant narcissist, the characteristics, will propel them to attack. And sometimes all you can do is hope it's not you, which seems like kind of a weird situation to be in. But I've seen this manifest in a lot of different ways in organizations. You see this kind of strange occurrence that can happen where somebody's kind of learn to lay low. And for that reason, the malignant narcissist doesn't attack them and they attack other people. And they explain to me anyway, what I've heard is they say they have a kind of survivor's remorse. Like they've learned to avoid being attacked by the malignant narcissist. But they also know that means other people are going to be attacked and they feel guilty about that. And really, I do view it as kind of a form of survival. They're just trying to survive. They're just trying to avoid being the one who gets victimized by the malignant narcissist. So I don't think they really necessarily have anything to feel guilty about, but I understand they do feel guilty. It's a natural reaction. And really, like I said, it's a lot like survivor's remorse. So those are some of the characteristics of malignant narcissism. And I explained kind of the way I understand the construct. So to kind of sum it up, I would say malignant narcissism is a combination of traits that allow somebody to succeed and get into a position of power while simultaneously driving them to harm people. So really, it provides no incentive for change. It's a bad combination of traits because of what allows people to do in terms of harm. So they get into a position where they can harm, and then they have the desire to harm other people. For more content like this, check out Healthy Toxic, another podcast from Ars Longa Media, all about what makes or breaks relationships, including issues related to narcissism, narcissistic abuse, and how personality disorders affect relationships. Ars Longa, Vita Brevitz. Learn more at ArsLonga.media. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. and. Give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.